This is episode number 84. Keegan Randall wins Olympic gold and survives breast cancer just months after. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast on how to live a high-performance life, expanding the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. It was so exciting to know that this dream that I'd put out in the universe when I was 18 years old of trying to do something totally audacious and that had never been done before, to know that we did it. It may have taken 20 years and 18 Olympic starts, but we were able to do it. But I really hope that now it opens the door to a whole new realm of what U.S. cross-country skiing can do. Welcome, you guys. I'm so thankful that you're here, and I really appreciate that you've been listening to my show and connecting with all of my awesome guests. I hope you guys are having an awesome holiday season. I definitely am. (laughs) I love going south. It's something that I do almost every single holiday season. I'm originally from New Mexico, and my parents still live there. So pretty much either at Christmas or before Christmas, we go to New Mexico to get some desert sun and also to connect with my family. My grandma also lives in New Mexico as well, and I just love going home for the holidays. My mom loves decorating, so it's just so cheerful and just awesome to be around them. And we also usually go to Arizona, so we are about to head to Sedona to do some riding, and we've been doing that for, gosh, the last four or five years, and it's just so nice to go there, and we have a small community of friends there that we like seeing. I've been loving all of your messages about the show. Thank you so much for taking the time to send me an email or send me a message or take a screenshot and share the show. It makes me feel so good that these guests and these stories are making a big difference in helping us feel better, feel more inspired, and just be a part of your day. I'm starting to implement some fun new additions to the podcast. So if you haven't heard of Patreon, it's a crowdfunding website. So people donate money to the show and it helps with the growth and development. And even a couple bucks makes a big difference. And something that I've been doing to bring value to my patrons is posting who my guests are in advance. And then my guests get to ask questions to the guests that I actually say during the podcast. And also I mentioned their name. So I actually did a lot of pre-recorded episodes before the holidays so that I could take a little bit of a break from recording, but you're going to start noticing more and more questions being asked to guests that have been requested from patrons. So if you want in on that, if you want to be a part of the development of the show, go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show, and you can check it out in the show notes as well. And I'd love to see you guys on there. So let's get into today's guest. I was really lucky to have the opportunity to record this episode in person. Most of my podcasts are conducted over Skype, and it's really special to get to sit down across from somebody and have that opportunity. And today's somebody is really amazing. Her name is Kicken Randall, and when she was five years old, she decided she was going to the Olympics for skiing. Most five-year-olds have lofty and cute dreams that rarely come to fruition, but this wasn't the case for Kegan. Not only did she make it to her first Olympics for cross-country skiing at just 19 years old, but she has five Olympic games under her belt. Five. Keegan's house might tip over with all the medals, and as a 17-time U.S. national champion, 16 podiums at World Cups, and topping it off with a shiny Olympic gold medal that she won in Pyeongchang in 2018, she definitely has a lot of hardware in her home. 
Two years before Pyeongchang, Keegan also gave birth to her son, Breck. Truly, she is Wonder Woman. Keegan also decided to retire after the 2018 Olympics in Pyeongchang in that winter season. She was on a major high. She had just won the Olympics. She had been working for five Olympics to win an Olympic gold. And she was on such a high until one night she found a couple of small lumps in her breast. The doctors assured her it was probably nothing, but Keegan couldn't help but feel worried. The doctor came out to talk to her after her mammogram and uttered that she had stage two breast cancer. This podcast from start to finish is very powerful. It's a story of how Keegan has achieved such amazing things in her life, her unshakable champion mindset that drives her to stay positive, and her mission sharing her journey being treated and healing from breast cancer. You just might listen to this episode a couple of times. And before we get into it with Keegan, I wanted to share a quote from her website. Her quote is, The color pink has taken on a new chapter in my life as I was recently diagnosed with breast cancer. Although we caught it early and the prognosis is good, my life will change quite a bit in the coming months. It's a scary thing to learn you have cancer, and I have wondered every day since how this could have possibly happened to me. But I've promised myself that I will remain positive and active and determined throughout my treatment. I'm going to bring as much tenacity, strength, and energy towards this challenge as I have throughout my entire career. And she definitely did. If you go to her blog on her website, she does an actual video blog every single day since her treatment began. And there's hundreds of videos on there. So definitely go and check it out. All right, enough for me. Here is Keegan Randall. So you won the Olympic gold medal just in the last Olympics in Korea. Yeah, just really six months ago, we won the gold medal. And uh, and it was just a few short months after that that I learned I had cancer. So talk about going from the biggest high to the biggest low. But at the same time, there are actually so many similarities between the two journeys. Oh, really? So what are those similarities? As an athlete, you take good care of your body and you have a plan that leads to your ultimate goal. And it takes a team of people around you to help you be successful. And you're going to have days that go well and days that are tough. And every day you go through it, you get a little closer to your goal. Whether you get that goal or not, you never know. There's a lot of things out of your control. Going through cancer, same kind of thing. A lot of things you can't control. You need a team of people around you. For me, I was helpful to make a plan and look at all the different steps I was going to complete to ultimately get to my goal of being cancer-free. Wow. (laughs) There's so much in there. So I think we should probably go back to the beginning of you becoming a cross-country skier because the listeners may or may not be familiar with cross-country skiing (laughs) and actually just doing more research on you. It's like, I didn't even know that there was different types of racing, that there was like almost relay types of racing. So how did you get into into cross-country skiing? Well, I was really lucky to grow up in a very active family. My mom's side of the family actually have an aunt and an uncle that went to the Olympics in cross-country skiing. And my mom skied collegiately. So growing up, I had great role models and just it was a family activity that we did in Alaska. My dad came from Wisconsin and fell in love with alpine skiing in high school. So he wanted me to be a downhill skier. So he got me on downhill skis the day after my first birthday. And so in starting to just grow up around being active outside a lot, Having these great role models, I remember watching my first Olympics at five years old and deciding, yeah, I'm going to the Olympics. It was just a matter of what sport I was going to choose. So I think having the right environment to grow up in and then just having some natural tendencies to want to be stronger, faster, to like be able to focus on something, set my mind to it and work systematically to achieving it. 
I'm happy that that's how my dream was born, mostly out of the lifestyle, because I think that's what allowed me to stay in the sport long enough to be successful at my fifth Olympics 20 years into a career. Wow. So you're probably one of those little kids. It's like passing by all these older people like me on the ski slope, like, oh, gosh, I just got my butt kicked by a three-year-old again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the cool thing about a young kid on skis is that you naturally pick up the movements really well. And it's all about play. You're not thinking about, you know, should my arm go here? Should my leg do this? So it's really just very authentic. And I grew up with a lot of great friends and cousins. So we just chased each other around. And early on, I only skied up the hills so that I could ski back down them (laughs) and go off jumps. And I think that play aspect was really important. And that actually made me a better elite competitive skier later on. Yeah, I think the overanalyzing as adults is something that we're all super guilty of. And I always try to think about what is that child mindset? But it's so hard because we're like judging ourselves and we're like looking at other people and we forget to have fun sometimes when we're trying to learn a new sport. I definitely experienced that last year when I was trying to learn cross-country skiing. It was just information overload and it's like, I should just try to have fun doing this, but it's so hard because I'm trying to do all these things that everybody keeps telling me and pointing at me telling me to do. Yeah. Cross country is definitely can be a very technical sport. You can fill your mind with a million things you should do this way or do that way. So what I find simple and for me, I was always working on technique. I mean, it's something you never fully master. doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. So for me, if I could just pick one thing and just go out and ski and spend a lot of time skiing, if you focus on that one thing, you figure it out. And then the next time you come back and you get a little bit more instruction to try something else, I also found just watching people ski, watching really good people ski, helped me kind of visualize the way I wanted. And that was just a way to kind of get your body to do it without thinking too hard. So you mentioned that you got on alpine skis after your first birthday. What made you decide to go the masochistic style skiing? (laughs) That is a great question. One that I contemplated often when I was in the middle of a grueling, grueling workout. But I did both sports growing up through high school. And when I got into high school, I'd actually gotten more serious about running. And all my running friends were doing cross-country skiing in the winter. So when I figured out that it was just going to be physically impossible to do the alpine races and cross-country races at the same time, I gravitated to cross-country because of the friend group. And then a couple years into it, I got aware of the fact that no American woman had ever won an Olympic medal in cross-country skiing from the U.S. So to me... In Alpine, the history books had already been written, and it was kind of intriguing to think, wow, maybe I could be the first one. And so it was just this combination of factors that really pulled me in. That's so cool. And I think that I read that you did win the very first Olympic medal as a female, or was it for anybody? Uh, It was our first ever gold medal for the American team. And we had one silver medal from 1976 Mm -hmm. that Bill Coke had won. So this was our first gold medal ever. I did share it with a teammate. And my teammate actually gets a lot of the credit because she put on the most amazing sprint in the last 100 meters to go past Sweden and win us the gold by 0.19 of a second. Um, So it was an incredible, I mean, a storybook ending for me, you know, having started off on this quest to be the first, having gone through five Olympics. In my fourth Olympics, I came into those games considered a gold medal favorite in an individual event, just had a bad day. And that was my one shot. And so for it to come in in a team event actually meant a lot more to me than an individual one would ever had. And just kind of to think back to that young self of mine that was just dreaming about this and we made it happen. That's so awesome. You know, a lot of times people will discredit team things. And I've done a lot of team events in cycling. And I think that you should get even more credit on a team because 
it isn't just about you all the time. And there's other tactics, there's other mindsets, there's special things that you need to do on a team to make it work and to win as a team. Yeah, I think it's really incredible in a sport like cross-country skiing too, because it is such an individual sport. And in a lot of the races, we're actually competing against each other. But we really seem to find special magic when we came together as a team. I know for me personally, I could always dig a little deeper knowing my teammates were counting on me. And also kind of knowing that we were representing the greater team too. We were representing the technicians, the coaches, you know, everyone that had put us out there. We found some real identities in our team relay socks, in our face paint, just kind of coming together, really having the right spirit and having fun. And it really elevated our whole team. So you mentioned five Olympics. Most people never even make it to one Olympics, let alone five. How old were you when you went to the first Olympics? I was pretty young. I was 19 years old. And in the sport of cross-country skiing, that is uh, very much on the young side. But they had just introduced the sprint event, um, which I think catered to a little bit of a younger athlete. Also, it was kind of just an American-style event. And so I qualified for that team really just to go there and get experience. I mean, I was far from the medals, but it was great to go in there, really just get inspired, kind of see what the best were doing, and then make a plan on how I was systematically going to work my way up to that level. Wow. Like if you think about what most 19 year olds are doing, (laughs) they're not (laughs) dedicating their life to a sport and then going to the Olympics at age 19. Like, yeah, if I think back to my 19 year old (laughs) self, it's rather comical. How did you stay interested in the sport through high school? Because a lot of times what I see is these younger athletes that start at a very young age, it's like they are dedicated to it. But then over time, especially when they become a teenager, they burn out, they lose interest, or they realize that they weren't doing it for themselves to begin with. Well, that is a very puzzling question. We do see a lot of girls, unfortunately, leave sport in their teenage years. For me, I really credit the variety of things I did growing up. My parents always let me try a lot of different things. Once I committed to something, I had to at least see it through the season. But if at the end of the season I wanted to try something else, I was free to do so. So, I mean, I didn't set my sights on cross-country skiing until midway through high school. And then once I made that first Olympic team at 19... I mean, in a sense, that was the big dream to make the Olympics. But I quickly realized being at those games and seeing winners stand on the podium that trying to go after that podium was something I really wanted to do. And that was a big decision point for me because up until that point, I'd been in the sport full time for three years and I'd had a lot of success. But to go from being an Olympic participant to an Olympic podium contender, that was going to be more like a 10-year process. And at 19 years old, that was really hard to wrap my head around But we laid out this plan together with my coaches and we just worked backwards from that Olympic medal and figured out all the different steps I was going to have to make. And then pretty soon it wasn't this 10 year plan. It was, this is what I'm doing this year. Okay. I got close to that. All right. On to the next year. And it literally felt like I just had my head down working on these small goals. And then one day, 10 years later, I look up and now I'm a medal contender. Wow. And I think it's really cool that you had a coach or coaches that you trusted enough in their judgment to plan, like make a 10 year plan, because a lot of times the coach doesn't always know what to do and doesn't know how to lay out a really long term plan like that. How did you know to trust that process? Well, it was a bit of an ideological plan, I would say. You know, a lot of it was based on kind of certain result markers. So the day-to-day training wasn't necessarily planned out for 10 years. But again, I always had really clear goals that I was working towards. So the coaches that I actually sat down and made that 10-year plan with were not the coaches I had my entire career. Mm -hmm. But that kind of set the stage and the direction for where I was going. 
And then along the way, it gave me something to periodically check back in and say, am I on track or not? So early on in my career, I definitely relied a lot on the coaches to tell me what to do. But as I went through my career later on, I realized I needed to take more and more responsibility for knowing what worked well for me personally, what was motivating, and then becoming more of a partner in building that training program. So to where at the end, the coaches really helped me kind of facilitate the training I wanted to do. They were there kind of as advisors, but I was driving a lot of it. What was that like in high school to be so dedicated to a sport? I mean, like, what was your day-to-day like? And then did you feel isolated from all the other kids because they're like being high school kids and you're trying to go to the Olympics? (laughs) When I was in high school and trying to make the Olympics, it was very much this big dream idea. I mean, it was cool and exciting to say it out loud, but it was pretty audacious to think that would actually happen. So I thankfully got to be a pretty normal high school kid. I did cross-country running in the fall, skiing in the winter, and track in the spring. So that kept me super busy. I loved being in a, I was in a bigger high school. I think we had 2,000 students. So I got to do a lot of the normal things, homecoming. And towards my junior and senior year, I was missing a lot of the winter term for being in Europe to follow the races. But thankfully, my teachers were supportive, and I did a lot of my work correspondence. And then I got to come back in the spring and do everything again. So I think the type of athlete I was in high school maybe stunted my progression as a skier in those first few years after high school. I think from what we know now, if I'd wanted to train more in high school, I maybe could have accelerated my progress. But at the same time, I think because I gradually worked my way up to the big training hours and spending more and more time in Europe, I think that's what gave me the longevity in my career is that I didn't get too serious too fast. I got to enjoy success at every level and that success built my confidence and kept me on track to the big goals. So you were progressing, doing more Olympics. So like the first Olympics, you're probably like deer in headlights. Oh my God, I made the Olympics. This is crazy. Then did it just become like, oh yeah, it's just like another Olympics or every single time where you like, oh my gosh, like I'm at the Olympics. Well, I was really worried that my first Olympics was going to kind of ruin it for me because Mm. I was young. I was so excited. I looked forward to the Olympics my whole life. And here we were the home team in Salt Lake City. So we got to walk into the stadium last. I got to have a lot of friends and family there cheering for me. So I kind of thought, oh, man, if that's my first experience, how am I ever going to recreate that? But I was pleasantly surprised how every Olympics was so unique and still just took my breath away. I mean, walking into that opening ceremonies was so incredible every time. Getting to meet the other athletes from around the world. You know, every Olympics just had different goals and expectations for me. And so my second Olympics in Italy... I was hoping to prove to myself that I was on my trajectory. So I'd finished 44th in Salt Lake in the sprint. I wanted to be top 20. And I remember going into those Olympics, like pretty nervous of going, oh man, like I've got this pretty aggressive goal. I'm going up against the best athletes in the world. You know, I've got to show myself here I'm on track. And then I kind of realized how I was getting consumed so much about the outcome and the results. So I literally had a pep talk with myself on the side of the trail and just said, hey, you've done four years of really good training. You just got to go out there tomorrow and ski as fast as you can. And that's the only thing that matters. And so I literally went into the race with that mindset and I surprised myself and I finished 10th in the qualifying round, which was far beyond where I'd ever been before. Ended up improving up to ninth place by the semifinals, establishing the best women's result we'd ever had in the sport and just kind of blowing my own expectations. So that was cool because that was a turning point in terms of my confidence and, and showing myself I was on track. Going into the Vancouver Olympics, That was when I was starting to be of the age and the amount of training where I theoretically should have been a medal contender. 
but we have different techniques in cross-country skiing. The sprint event was always my best, the shorter event. It was going to be in the classic style in Vancouver. Hmm. Well, I'm a stronger skate skier. So it'd be like the 100 meters in the Summer Olympics switching from sprinting to race walking every other Olympics. You know, two very different sports, really. So in the Vancouver, I had to go in with some my own expectations of if I were to get into the semifinals of a classic sprint, that would be a huge breakthrough for me. So I did that. I ended up finishing eighth. And a lot of people said, oh, you must be disappointed. You were so far from the medals. And I said, no way, man. I achieved my goal. I proved that I'm making the progress. And in four years, I will get a shot at my best event. That takes a lot of patience and a lot of self-belief to just stick to that plan. Because like, it sounds like because you've been doing this a long time, four years just sounds like a really quick period of time. But four years is a really long time to stick to the path to keep at that goal. It definitely can be a long time, you know, and it's, it's always the balancing act of being able to afford to do it too, you know, yeah. being able to recruit sponsors and, and have the support to get there. So I was fortunate that I had, of course, a lot of those intermediate goals to get me through every season. But really from Vancouver to Sochi actually was probably one of the, the coolest parts of my career because I could tell I was gaining the strength and the speed to really be competitive. And I had four years to prepare and look forward to that big event. So coming into Sochi, I, you know, had been getting stronger. I'd been getting good results in the World Cup. So I came into those Olympics stronger than ever. And I tried to remember to kind of take a moment and not rush through everything to remember this feeling. Because once the race is over, regardless of the result, it's over. And sometimes it's the buildup and the process that is the really exciting part. So I was really excited. I wanted to rush to the race, but also tried to remember. And again, I had a pep talk with myself the day before the event in Sochi. And that was, okay, I'm going to go out and ski the best I can tomorrow. I'm going to be aggressive. I'm not going to be afraid of my competitors. And if, as long as I give it my best effort, no matter what the result, I will walk away satisfied. Now, it was easy to tell myself the story because in my mind, giving my best effort was going to win a gold medal the first ever for the America. It was going to be so exciting. I was so confident, but I had to be prepared for anything. And as the day unfolded in Sochi, I didn't have my best day and I got eliminated in the quarterfinals by five hundredths of a second. And so my best effort didn't end up as gold that day. It ended up as getting eliminated a little bit early. And so I, as I left the finish area, I, I remembered that discussion I'd had with myself and I had to go, well, I executed my strategy. You know, I was aggressive. I did everything I could. And I just didn't get my goal today. And uh, of course, you feel disappointed. And it took a while to kind of build myself up from that. But I'm so glad that I had that perspective. Because if it had only about winning that gold medal, there's no way I would have continued another four years in the sport. And I would have left the sport with such a bitter taste in my mouth, I think. And like, how do you deal with expectations? Because it sounds like a lot of these are your own inner expectations. But then there's also external expectations of fans, of sponsors, of coaches, so when you go out there and you know that that was the best you could do on that day and you could say, yeah, that, I'm proud of that, but like someone else might not be as understanding. So how did you balance that? I think it was one of the saving graces for me is a lot of the community work I've done and spending a lot of time talking with kids. Mm -hmm. And so in the whole buildup to those Olympics, you know, I talked about how exciting it was to be in this position to hunt for the medals and but it, that I had to go out there and give it my best. So as I was, again, trying to kind of rationalize this result that was less than what I wanted, I really just got to talk about how I gave it the best that I could. And I'm proud of the, the preparation I did and the effort I gave. And then I'm going to be okay. And I've got new exciting things to chase after. You know, I'm motivated to go for another Olympics. I think being in a sport like cross-country skiing, 
people can genuinely appreciate that and rally around that. I mean, everybody, I think, was just as disappointed with me. But I think being able to kind of come out of it with the right attitude was really powerful for everybody and really set the stage to the whole team to get stronger over the next four years. And as I look back on my career, that disappointment in Sochi is probably the best thing that could have happened to me because it taught me so much about myself and it taught me how much the journey of it and the preparation really matters. I mean, the results are cool. That's why we do it. But at the end of the day, it's always going to be about how you judge yourself. And if you can be proud of your effort, that's way better than any shiny piece of metal that you get stuck in your sock drawer somewhere. <laughs> so is your gold medal in your sock drawer? <laughs> well, it's not exactly in the sock drawer right now, but it's sitting in the bottom of my backpack. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's so hard to actually practice that. It's something that I massively struggle with. And then there's times where it's like you win and you're actually not proud of your effort. And you're like, oh, I won. It doesn't really mean anything to me because I actually am not really proud of my effort. So it's this hard balance of just even if people listening aren't really like competitive athletes, it's like learning how to just be proud of your effort, be proud of that you're out there doing the best you can. But it's so hard because everything is so focused on results, like number of followers on Instagram. What place did you come? What's your 10K time? Like, all of those things. And we tend to value those things in society so much more than digging into the human experience and figuring out, wow, like this person had to overcome a lot just to get to that start line. And that's a win in itself. Yep, for sure. I mean, there's always going to be external expectations. And I think it's something that you would just have to continually practice and you're not going to nail it right away. There's definitely going to be times when you're disappointed in the results. But over time, if you can just constantly kind of always evaluate yourself, did you give it the best effort? What can I learn from this? What can I do better? Being able to really be satisfied with that, I think, gives you this internal feeling that you carry with you through all aspects of your life. I mean, it can be as simple as, did I remember to take my vitamins at night? You know, when you do it, you get that little like feeling of satisfaction. And I think the more of those little feelings we can build up in our lives, the more kind of positive we feel, energetic, fulfilled. So I just try to bring that attitude. My favorite quote is to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift from Steve Prefontaine because it just always reminding me, am I giving it my best? I love that. That's so awesome. There's a great book I just read and I've been following this guy's blog forever, but his name is James Clear and his book is Atomic Habits. And he's talking about just like working towards goals, but he says, screw the goal, like focus on the process. And he says, like, do little habits every single day that you can be really proud of that will eventually give you the identity of what you're trying to become. So like someone that takes their vitamins every day, that's someone who's trying to like take care of themselves and be healthy. Like it's all the little tiny things that make up our identity, not some external like award or check mark that you get at the end of the day. And it's amazing how those little habits and those little decisions you make throughout the day eventually do lead to the results you want. But the coolest part is because you're not chasing the result for that alone, these other things then also carry into the rest of your life. And I'm finding that now in my cancer journey so much because there really is no like result or award I can earn. I mean, I can get the designation of cancer free, which is exciting, but it's the little decisions I'm making every day that are going to determine the quality of my life, you know, potentially how long, how long I have to live, those kind of things. So all of a sudden it becomes a lot more clear, like how important those little things are to really, add, that really add up. Yeah. I'm excited to really dig into that, but I don't want to leave the cross country skiing part. Cause I think it's so fascinating. Was there ever a time in your career where you're asking yourself, do I actually still want to do this? Like, do I actually want to continue skiing? Why am I still doing this? 
Definitely. I mean, you can't get through a 20-year career without having doubts at some point. I think some of the hardest years for me were my first few years after high school, where I had committed to this long-term plan of trying to do something no American woman had ever been close to. So there was nothing to show me it was possible. There really was no network of support financially for pursuing a career like this long-term. You know, I was supported by the U.S. ski team and, and my club team for the travel and the training expenses, but to actually make a living. So that was something I had to kind of invent for myself as well. Meanwhile, all the people I went to high school with, they've gone to university, they've gotten their four-year degrees, and now they're starting their career. And there were a few years in there where my trajectory wasn't always straight up. It plateaued and I definitely questioned, you know, I'm still getting 50th in the world. How can I imagine being on that Olympic podium? Here I'm doing it. I'm making no money. I'm delaying a career. But I just, I love the lifestyle and I just felt like I had time. And it usually, if I had some doubting periods, I could always find something positive to focus on, whether it was my my trend in my training or just knowing, okay, this is a bad week, but there's always next week. You know, I'll reevaluate at the end of the season. And it just kind of, everything just kind of kept building on itself. And I had big breakthrough at my second Olympics, which was about, I would say, four years into that really training full time. And that was critical. I think if I had struggled through that Olympics and maybe another year, then it would have been really hard to maintain. Mm -hmm. But I got the sign I needed that I was on track. And then that was, that was full steam ahead. So whenever you started doing well, like you mentioned in Italy, your goal was top 20 and then you got ninth. Was there any sort of imposter syndrome or like you're up there skiing at the front like, oh, my gosh, like I don't even know if I'm supposed to be here? Definitely. In fact, in that Olympics, I took the lead in the quarterfinals right off the start. And I, I don't remember if I consciously heard the announcer say it or if someone told me, but I remember the thought of like, oh, my gosh, I'm leading the top women in the world here. Should I be up front? You know, should I not? Is this smart? I had another instance at the World Championships in 2009, right before I won my first uh, World Championship medal. Same thing. I'm leading the race with 100 meters to go. And I'm kind of like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm leading World Championships. This is, this is crazy. And I managed to hold on to the silver to the line. And then several instances, and it, that's what the real change happened for me. And that's when I knew I could really contend for Olympic medals. When in my mind, I started to take command of the race and not feel like, oh, I shouldn't be here, or am I doing things right? It was just like, no, I have a plan and I'm doing it and I'll figure it out. And I also wanted to ask about world championships versus the Olympics, because it seems like it would be the same people, but maybe it's not because each country is only allowed to send a certain number of people, whereas world championships, you can send more than you would be able to send to the Olympics. So like, what is the competition quality in the competition mindset like between a world championship and between an Olympics? That is a great question. What's interesting is in cross-country skiing, world championships in the Olympics, you change the banners, but everything else is really the same. I mean, the level of competition is literally the same. The difference is the Olympics gets more attention and more hype from the outside. But in terms of the competition, world championships is as competitive as ever. I mean, it's the point in the season when everybody's trying to be at their best. The start quotas actually are limited to four athletes per nation at the world championships, just like they are at the Olympics. Mm. So you may see actually a slight difference between world cup racing and world championships and Olympics. But outside of that, yeah, I mean, and on the world cup, it's still also really competitive. By the time you get to a world championships or Olympics, you've been racing these people, I mean, all season. Mm -hmm. So you kind of know, I mean, everybody's hitting their peak at a different point and that's kind of what you wait to see. I'm actually really glad because if it was only about the Olympics, 
four years would be a long time to wait. But having a full World Cup season to look forward to every year, having a world championship every other year, there was just this one odd year that would occur kind of in between Olympic cycles where there wasn't actually a major championship. And that year was always kind of funky because it was just hard to pick your focus during the season. But yeah, I'm so glad that we just we kind of had action all the time. I wanted to ask you if you could give the listeners some advice about nerves because you have performed under a lot of pressure and maybe you didn't feel the pressure, but it seems like Olympics, high pressure situation, TV, high pressure situation, expectations, high pressure situation. And you're on that start line and like you had the pep talk with yourself the day before, but like, how do you manage nerves? I'll tell you, it doesn't matter what level you reach, there will always be nerves. And that's important because the nerves tell you that you are actually prepared for battle. If there was ever a race I came into where I didn't have nerves, I was more concerned about that. So I certainly have had plenty of times to face those butterflies in my stomach. And I think through my career, I figured out some strategies that helped me deal with it. I actually learned that like folding my clothes and getting my room all straight and neat before a race was a great way to just kind of calm my nerves and it kept me organized to make sure I took everything to the race I needed. My teammates teased me about it a little bit, but some strategies like that, I always found that being around my teammates and kind of being lighthearted before a race kind of helped me just focus my energy in the right way. I like a good pump up song on the way to the race, just anything with a good beat and maybe it can be one word or it can be a phrase that you can kind of repeat in your mind and use you when you're hitting those difficult moments in the race. And then when it came time to that last hour or so before the race, I just, I had a really dialed in process. Mm -hmm. So it was more just about going through the motions and doing each stage of the process so that by the time you actually get to the start line, that's when the nerves are the easiest to deal with because you've done everything you can do. Now you just got to go out there and do it. Mm -hmm. So it was always kind of fun to just those last few moments before the gun went off to be there kind of having that last little pep talk with yourself. I'm just going, all right, you know, we've done the work. We folded our clothes, we've listened to the music, we've got the relay socks on, whatever it is, <laughs> you know, the skis are dialed and you just, from there on, you're just your own best cheerleader and you just go for it. Something that I like to do is smile on the start line. And I started making myself implement that like a few years ago because I look around and it would be like, I'm uncomfortable when things are quiet. It would just be like dead silent. Everybody's like, just the tension would be so thick. So I'd be like, just smile. And then that nerves will maybe, maybe you'll trick yourself into thinking it's excitement because you're smiling. And then maybe it'll help relax the people around you too. Oh, definitely. I mean, I think the more you can just keep things lighthearted. And I think they've scientifically proven that actually the making your mouth smile releases like I think positive chemicals in your brain. So definitely a great strategy. And um, I think that's something our American team actually brought to the sport because mm -hmm. when I first came over to the World Cup and they would do the TV introductions before the race, everybody was so serious. And when the camera would pan to me, I just, I would give a big smile. I'd give a little cheer yeah. and my teammates really picked up on that. And so we brought that and now you see a lot more smiles and a lot more uh, joking around. I mean, everybody's still professional, but it just, it really made the whole thing more fun. And I think it really helped us build good camaraderie with, with the other racers too. We can destroy each other on the race trail, but it's pretty cool to be friends afterwards. That's really cool that you could change the culture of racing at that level. Like it's just amazing because leadership starts at the top and it trickles down. So if the people at the top are actually smiling and saying, yeah, like we're here to kick some ass, but we're actually having fun man, that really, that really trickles down to the recreational people and the people who aren't even racing just to not take themselves so seriously. And it makes the sport so much better. And it makes people stay in the sport longer too. 
Definitely. And I think I came into it just maybe a little bit naive and just kind of doing things that worked for me. And I enjoyed getting to know the people around me. I realized I was there because I loved doing it. I was excited to be in kind of these more important positions all the time. And then I just had fun passing that along to my teammates. And it's been really cool to see that trickle through the different levels now. And so now, now as I watch those races on TV, I, I will look forward to observing kind of some of those things from another perspective now. Awesome. I want to move on to the last Olympics. So you mentioned that you did that as a team. So what made you decide to do that over doing it as an individual? Well, we actually have six medal events per gender at the Olympics, four individual races and two are relays. And they are distributed with the two techniques we have so that every other Olympics, there's at least an opportunity to do each technique in kind of each distance category. Mm -hmm. But they always have the two relays. And so after Sochi, I knew I wouldn't get a chance at my best individual event, which is a skate sprint. It would be a classic sprint in Pyeongchang. Mm -hmm. But the team sprint, which is a two-person event, which is one of the two relays, would be skating. And that's traditionally an event our team is really good at. So it was that particular event that actually really motivated me between 2014 and 2018. And there was no guarantee I was even going to be on my own team because my teammates had all gotten so fast. We probably had six girls vying for those two spots. So my motivation coming in was to train as hard as I could to be one of those two racers. But knowing that if I didn't get chosen as one of those two, I would have at least made my teammates a lot stronger along the way. And that was going to improve our chances to win a medal. So I was also really excited about the four-person event, which I raced a couple of days earlier in the Olympics. We gave it a good try. We ended up fifth. It was our best result we'd ever had at the Olympics, but we were a little disappointed not to get a medal. So when it came down to that team sprint, I didn't find out I was named to the team until about 36 hours before. Whoa. So it was kind of a major like anticipation of who was going to be named to that team. And when I got told that I was going to be one of the two people on that team, I was sitting next to my teammate who was really, I guess, my main contender for that spot. And the coach came in and he was going to tell one of us that we were getting our dream spot. And on the other hand, the other person was going to find out that they weren't get a chance to maybe fight for a medal. So I got to give so much credit to my teammate, uh, Sadie Bjornsson, who was sitting next to me when we got the news. And when I found out it was going to be me, she just turned to me and said, what can I do? How can I help you guys? Wow. And so the next day, we actually went out and did a workout with our entire women's team because we thought it'd be fun to mess with the heads of the Europeans a little bit, <laughs> not knowing which one of us was going to race. And we did a team workout on the course. The morning of the race, we all went for a run together. I mean, just when my teammate could have completely been disappointed and disengaged, instead, she did what she could do to support me and Jesse on the team. And so did our other teammates. And that is just an so amazing to me. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about like within the team competition. I mean, people can be really competitive against each other, even if you're on the same team. So it sounds like, wow, that's that was probably one of the most amazing women teams ever that has that type of support. It is. And it's, it's a culture that we really worked hard on over time. You know, initially when I made the World Cup, I was the only woman on the U.S. team. And so I had to sit out the relay events. And I hated it because I love those team events. And so I kept bugging the coaches, you know, let's get the top women in the, in the country together. You know, let's get our young racers in. And eventually we started to kind of pull together this team. And when we, when we were first traveling together, I was for sure the veteran because I'd been to, through several seasons. But these young girls were coming on. And I just was so excited to have a teammate that I took him under my wing, you know, like and just was so excited to show him the way. And I knew that by encouraging them and getting helping them be stronger, 
it was going to make me a better skier, but it was also going to really develop this fun training group to be with, and it was going to make us competitive in the relays. So we started to kind of build that positive dynamic. And then we got our women's coach really challenged us to be the best teammates we could be. So he said, you know, this is kind of like a family where you don't get to choose your siblings. You know, you don't get to choose your teammates. They, whoever skiing fastest qualifies. But we can decide to support each other and be the best teammates we can be to each other and kind of buy into this team concept that everybody contributes to every success we have on this team, whether it's an individual success or a team success. We've all contributed. And I think that really allowed us to pull more out of ourselves than we would have ever done individually. And it's not to say that conflicts didn't arise. I mean, we traveled in Europe for five months of the year living out of duffel bags. It really was like being with your family and conflicts came up, but we just, we handled it from the perspective of respect and supporting each other. And I think we really did honestly believe that we were part of every success. And that's what allowed us to have that culture at the Olympics where you know, I know Sadie and I know some of the other girls were incredibly disappointed to not be on that relay. And I probably would have felt that way too, had I not been chosen, but I was prepared to also be proud that I was a contributing member. And so now that we know that we were able to create that successful culture, people want to know how we did it. And I think it was just out of this, this common goal and this respect for each other. Yeah. And it also sounds like good communication. Yeah, I think we were proactive. We would anticipate what situations might be challenging for us. We were open about what our strengths were, what our weaknesses were. We had to talk about kind of what we needed. You know, if we had a bad race, did you want to be, did you need a hug or did you just want to be by yourself? You know, recognizing everybody's kind of individual needs was really important. And early on, it felt ridiculous to talk about that kind of stuff because our team chemistry was working so well. But then as we all got a little bit better and we're starting to challenge each other for those positions, you know, and challenge each other for literally the win of the race, then those skills became really, really important. And so had we not laid that foundation, it could have turned into a total cat fight. So why do they not name, like, why do they wait until 36 hours before to name who's on the team? Because the coaches are trying to pick the two athletes that they feel will be the fastest and most successful in that race. And this was the fifth race at the Olympic Games. So you had athletes that have been doing a lot of racing already. You know, is everyone healthy? Who is coming into peak form? Who's maybe flattening out a little bit? You know, you're looking at the course and going, okay, whose skills really match up with this? So it's really a difficult position, especially in a sport like cross-country skiing where you don't have very objective ways to judge people. (laughs) It's really a lot of just how people look and how they're feeling. And so the coaches are waiting to the last minute so that they can pick the two fastest. And I know it was a really hard decision for them because like I know between me and Sadie, it was a really tough call. We both had a lot of big strengths to bring to it. Mm -hmm. So they were just kind of waiting to see how the other races went and who literally was feeling good in that last date. They are so going in. Wow. So what did it mean to you to be the first American man or woman to win an Olympic gold? What did that mean to you for leading the sport and leading the future of the sport and also Like, that's a huge, huge thing for our country. Well, to me, it was just the biggest feeling of satisfaction and validation for everything that our team had been working for. I mean, for me, it was so exciting to know that this dream that I put out in the universe when I was 18 years old of trying to do something totally audacious and that had never been done before, to know that we did it. It may have taken 20 years and 18 Olympic starts, but we were able to do it. 
And because the Olympics get so much attention, especially in the United States, it was so important for our team to prove that we could be successful at the Olympic Games. We had been successful at every other level, but we hadn't yet gained the attention and the respect because we hadn't been successful at the Olympics. So to be able to do it in this, literally under the spotlight, you know, of those stadium lights that night, to do it in a team event, to make history like that, it finally gave us the chance to tell our story. And I'm so happy and grateful that I got to be a part of it, that I got to be one of two team members to actually win that gold medal. But I really hope that now it opens the door to a whole new realm of what U.S. cross-country skiing can do. I hope it's as powerful as Roger Bannister when he broke the four-minute mile. I mean, no one thought it was possible. And then once he did it, that record started falling literally day by day. And so now that our skiers know what's possible, I think we're going to be far more successful. This was the first gold medal, but it's certainly not going to be the last. And you can already see that in Jessie, my teammate, because when she came into the sport, I had started to win World Cups and I had won a World Championship medal. So she could already see what was possible, you know, ahead of where I was at that point when it was still this total unknown. We'd also figured out things in training and techniques for racing and things like that. So I hope we can just use this gold medal to keep things going forward. And you were a mom when you won that gold medal. So what made you decide between Sochi and Pyeongchang to become a mom? Well, it was a big decision for me after the 2014 Olympics because I knew I wouldn't get a chance at my favorite individual event four years later. I knew that I was excited to start a family and I wasn't willing to wait four more years to do that. Mm -hmm. So then it was a big question of, well, can I do both? And so I did race one more season after those Sochi Olympics just to kind of keep the momentum going. But then we had one of those years where there was no championship. And so if there was ever going to be a winter to take off a racing, because I just could not figure out the math to get it to where I could be pregnant and not miss racing at some point, we ended up targeting that one year and, uh, you know, got my husband on board with the idea. And uh, thankfully, we were able to get pregnant on a really good timeline so that I still had a full world championship season to come back and then a full year to prepare for the Olympics. And I just went into it with this just really open mind of just being excited to start a family, being excited to get the opportunity to extend my career for another four years, not knowing exactly how it was going to go or whether or not it would be successful, but really being okay with with whatever the outcome would be as long as I gave it everything I had. And uh, it turns out becoming a mom actually made me a better athlete. Yeah, it took me a few months to work my way back, but then every every step I got back was that much more gratifying because I had to work for it. And then being able to have my family on the road with me, the new perspectives I gained, I think literally some of the mom strength you get from being a mom athlete really made me that better athlete. And so who knows if I hadn't had Breck, you know, if we'd be talking about a gold medal right now. And did having Breck change your perspective about just like life? Well, as an, as an athlete, you have to be so self-centered in a way because every decision you make, everything you do affects your performance. So contrast that with having a baby to where all of a sudden it's not about you anymore. It's about the baby and how just your motherly instincts kick in. And that's just not even a question anymore. So it was really amazing to compare the two, to be an athlete where you still have to be focused on yourself, but then also be bringing up this little human being that needs you and wants you and, and gives you so much joy. So for me, I, I couldn't believe how my perspective literally changed in an instant. From the moment he come in, came into my life, I knew I was going to do everything I could to make sure that he grew up in a great environment and to spend as much time as I could with him. But also knowing that for me to be the best mom I could be, 
I also kind of had to keep on with my passions and what made me feel full as a person. So to be able to blend ski racing and motherhood was that balancing act. And thankfully in doing so, I did gain a new perspective that every moment I was out training wasn't unlimited anymore. So when I was out there, I was going to make the most of it. And then when I came back and spent time with my son, then I could turn off all those other things about, oh, was my workout good today? You know, my skis weren't great. Like all those little things that used to seem important, now all of a sudden I could totally block out and I could spend that quality time with my son. Were there any other women at the Olympics skiing in the Olympics that had a a kid? Well, you know, what's really interesting is we had a total baby boom in cross-country skiing. There were actually seven women competing in Pyeongchang that we all had babies within a, a year of each other. So it was like the even playing field of mom power. Exactly. In <laughs> fact, in the team sprint race on my leg, I was up against Marit Bjergren from Norway and she had a baby four months before me. So you had two moms duking it out on the trail out there. Um, and it was really fun. We ended up kind of developing this camaraderie between all of us that had become moms and were still ski racing. And by the time I got to the Olympics, it just seemed like normal. Of course, you have a baby and come back to skiing. Wow. Yeah. It's so cool because you don't often hear the full story of the moms at the Olympics because there are moms at the Olympics, but it's not really focused on that. It's focused on the sport, which makes sense. But I think hearing the stories of, yeah, like as a mom, you have other challenges, like your kid can get sick and then you can get sick and then you can't train as hard or like you have to breastfeed or, you know, a whole host of other things that could happen that are not necessarily a bad thing, but just more things that you have to plan for in advance. Definitely. And the reason I was able to be so successful at it is because I had such an amazing support system helping me through it. (laughs) My husband got a job actually six years ago so that we could be together on the World Cup and see each other. He worked for the International Ski Federation. So when we had my son, he was able to be at home with him so that I could zip out for training sessions and come back. We traveled on the road together all winter. So having his support and having the support of our families was crucial in being able to blend the two. But then the fact that, like I said, by the time we got to the Olympics, it was so normal, I think was really cool because there are some unique challenges to being a mom, but sharing those stories with others and tips and learning, you find out that it is really manageable. And actually the year before the Olympics at the World Championships, the race was later in the day and I was changing diapers and washing out bottles and things like that. And it turned out that was a great way to settle the nerves. (laughs) And then I just remember like all of a sudden being like, okay, it's my time to go race. So I switched from mom mode into athlete mode. I knew my son was with my dad, so he was well taken care of. And it was cool to just be able to like go to the race and know I could do that. And yeah, I got, you know, there's times when I got sick and there were were other challenges, but overall it was very, very manageable. Did you already decide that you were going to retire before you won the medal? Or was it like you did the Olympics and you decided, I think I'm, I think I'm good now. I totally knew that no matter what happened at those Olympics, I was going to be done at the end of the season. I've always thought it would be cool to end my career on Olympics season because of um, just kind of the build up to such an epic championship like that. It was really fun, you know, bringing my family on the road for the last two years of my career. But to continue doing that was going to be challenging. And I felt that they had supported me to go through one more Olympics. And I was ready to kind of finish my career focus more on family and start some new challenges. So in a way, I think going into these, my fifth Olympics with this mindset of I'm going to go out and ski as hard as I can. And no matter what, I will walk away satisfied and knowing this is my last Olympics. So I better enjoy it. All that, as opposed to the previous four years where it was like, okay, I'm going to win this medal. 
maybe that mindset just kind of freed me up to actually go out and perform at my best. Did you experience any depression or like loss of identity the first or probably the second month after suddenly it's like, oh, I'm not racing anymore? Well, it was it was a pretty chaotic spring after the Olympics. We still had a couple of weeks of World Cup racing left and then uh, our final U.S. championships. So I was busy preparing for those races. Then I got home and we were holding a couple of retirement parties and we were moving to British Columbia. So it was really chaotic. So it, was, it wasn't until full two months, I think, after the Olympics that I really got to the point where I could even think about what my next step would be. And literally a couple of weeks into starting to figure that out. I find out I have cancer and then that just totally changed, changed what my mind was focusing on. And so I think I've experienced a little bit of what it's like to transition after sport, but because I've had this whole cancer part of the story, it's just been a really unique blend of things. Yeah. And you mentioned at the very beginning how you've used a lot of these athlete mindset tips and tricks that you've learned throughout the years and applied it towards your fight against cancer. But like how did you deal with it whenever you heard the diagnosis? Because I imagine, I don't know if that's the hardest part or if it's like weeks of weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of uh, or months of, of fighting the actual disease. What was it like when you got that diagnosis? Well, I was in this kind of new transition period where I was just kind of trying to figure things out. And when I first discovered the lumps and, and went and got it checked out, I was told it was probably nothing. And then I'd just wait a couple of weeks and get the diagnostic test to confirm. So... In my mind, I'm trying to focus on the, it's probably nothing. Okay, I'm just going to proceed as planned. At the same time, kind of having this just feeling in the back of my mind that something wasn't right. So when I actually did hear the words that it's cancer, it stopped me in my tracks a little bit because I had started to make all these plans for how I was going to transition. And suddenly it's not just, oh, well, this is unfortunate or inconvenient. This is like where you question your mortality. This is where you go, okay, this is cancer. Like this is serious business and I got to learn as much as I can and figure it out. And I think in that first week, there was just so much information coming at me trying to figure it out. I mean, not only learn about my diagnosis and what the treatment plan would be, but then um, I was now living in Canada. I wasn't a resident yet, so I needed to do my treatment in the U.S. and figure out the logistics of all that. It was chaotic and I think I was able to kind of throw myself into just the planning and the details right away that I didn't let the emotions sink in right away. But gradually, you can't totally escape it. So I definitely have moments where I really consider the gravity of it, just the frustration of it, of how can I go from being an Olympic gold medalist to now this? I mean, I've done everything right. <laughs> All the things they tell you to do to prevent breast cancer is what I do for a living. So there was that. But again, I kind of went back to a couple of the difficult situations in my ski career and I realized, well, you know, I, just, I have to focus on what I can control. I have to acknowledge those emotions, but then I have to turn it around and really focus on the positive side of things. And I think being able to just have that attitude and, and have that skill in a sense has helped me process a lot of this. And then just like I did in my athletic career, I just have surrounded myself with a great team of people to just lift me up on days when I'm feeling low and getting the best treatment I can and having that plan in place. How did you, or how do you accept the why me thoughts? Cause I'm sure that you had those, like, why did this happen to me? Like, I wish this wasn't happening. Like, how did you process that? Oh yeah. I don't, I don't think anyone can be immune to those kind of thoughts. They definitely hit me and, and I find they hit me when I'm feeling my worst. And if I haven't been able to get out and exercise, 
So I just have tried to acknowledge that thought and then I just kind of challenge it with reason and go, okay, well, we know cancer is is indiscriminate. It doesn't matter if you're an Olympic champion or you're someone that smokes 10 packs a day, you know, it's just, it's going to hit who it hits. And, you know, we don't fully understand it, but we've got to focus on the ways we know to deal with it. And so I've just really tried to think about how I'm going to get through this and how I'm going to use this to be stronger than ever. And I'm going to really use it to really appreciate the amazing things I have in my life. You know, it's easy when you have a two-year-old to get frustrated, you know, if he's if he's upset or you're stressed out because you're trying to do too many things at once. But all of a sudden you get a cancer diagnosis and you realize like, okay, I have this amazing little two-year-old in my life. I have this great family. You know, I do have this body that is capable of doing things right now. And I'm not going to think about the what ifs or the why me's. I'm going to think about what I can do right now and, and enjoy every moment I have. Yeah, it's super powerful. And I love that. So you have a daily vlog you've been doing on your website that people should definitely check out. I love that almost every single one you talk about like the exercise that you did that day. And you've basically been exercising every single day. And most people think, oh, well, if, if you're getting chemo or, you know, you're, you're, you have cancer, you can't exercise. You have to like lay in bed and just be sick. So what gave you the like or what made you think, yeah, like I can definitely keep exercising and I'm going to keep exercising? Did doctors tell you otherwise? Well, I ironically got involved with an organization called Active Against Cancer several years ago when I was racing in Norway. And the whole premise of the organization is they're really studying the research that physical activity helps your cancer treatment be more effective. It also, of course, helps with your physical well-being, your emotional well-being. And in some of the other setbacks I've gone through in my life, physical activity has at least given me the right distraction to keep moving forward. So when I got my diagnosis, there wasn't a question in my mind that I wasn't going to keep doing as much as I was capable of doing. And of course, I consulted with my medical team and I never wanted to push it and put myself in a dangerous situation. But I tried to approach it just like I did with my pregnancy where, you know, I'm going to see how it goes. I'm going to try to do something every day. I'm going to know that I'm going to listen to my body. And if my body's telling me to rest, well, that's maybe the sign I need to back down that day. But I also might find I can do I can do a lot, you know, and physical activity is my normal. So I knew I wanted to do that. And I also knew it was important to demonstrate, I think, the power that physical activity can have in your treatment. And so because I made this very public commitment to be active through my treatment, there were days when I'd be laying on the couch, not feeling great. And I would kind of remind myself or my husband would remind me. You know, I said I was going to be active. So maybe that doesn't mean a three hour run today. Maybe it means a walk around the block, but I'm going to go do something. And every time I did, it always made me feel better. Not always physically, but I at least got the mental boost from it and generally saw things turn around within within a day or so. So I, I really believe that being physical through this cancer battle so far has, has really helped me feel better, stay positive and not to lose too much fitness so that when I get through this, I can get right back to doing all the things I love to do. Yeah. And, you know, I think for a lot of people, whenever they think about what it would be like to be to have cancer and to have chemotherapy, they think about losing their hair and how traumatic that part would be. Like, what was that like for you? Well, it wasn't something I would say I looked forward to. And when you're getting ready to do chemotherapy, they literally tell you every side effect that you might possibly experience. I mean, it's literally like an hour long. They call it chemo training. And you could leave that feeling like pretty overwhelmed and like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be feeling so terrible. Everything's going to happen to me. But everybody reacts differently. So it's not to say you're going to experience all of those things. But it was pretty clear that losing your hair was going to be more than likely. So I just, again, kind of approached it with curiosity and just said, okay, well, I don't know when it's going to happen. 
So I'm going to enjoy my hair while I have it. And when I start to notice it falling out, I think I'm just going to go ahead and, and shave my head. I also went wig shopping with some really good friends of mine. I remember like walking into the wig shop and having to take like a big deep breath because then things started to feel pretty real. But quickly we were able to turn things around and have a lot of laughs with all the funny wigs out there. <laughs> um, so when it came time, it was only about two and a half weeks into my first round of chemo. And I was out skiing with some of my teammates and I took off my helmet and I realized I was pulling out a few more strands than normal. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, I'm playing with it and testing it and realizing, yep, my hair's coming out. So I had to get through a speaking engagement the next day. And I was just kind of like, come on, hair, hang in there through the speaking engagement. I literally finished the talk, went straight over to my hairdresser that I've been seeing for the last 10 years and just said, all right, let's do it. Again, took that deep breath and just said, all right, this is good. And the cool thing about hair is it'll grow back. There's certainly been times when, you know, it's a little weird to go out into public, you know, with a dress on and give a presentation. I have wigs, but I've hardly worn them because I've actually gotten surprisingly comfortable with it. And as an athlete, I'll tell you, it's actually really convenient. <laughs> Showers are super quick. And then this summer when it was hot outside, it was really nice. Now that it's getting a little bit cooler, I do have to wear uh, hats quite often, but it hasn't been as bad as I thought. And a lot of people go through it. And I think the more we can make it uh, just a normal part of the process take it with a little curiosity and then just it'll grow back. And is it hard? Cause I'm sure that there's people that probably just treat you the same, like the, how they have always treated you. But then I'm sure that after your diagnosis and then, you know, losing your hair, like people maybe started treating you differently or maybe just strangers give you a second look. Like what's that like? Well, the most incredible change I've noticed is you know, when we won the gold medal, a lot of people were really excited about that. I mean, so many people had been following me through my entire career, knew the highs and lows, and were so excited about that. But that accomplishment has not even been close to the response I've had from people since I announced my cancer diagnosis. Literally within seconds of posting on Instagram, I had people writing me from all over the world. And this time, not just celebrating a, an accomplishment, but telling me how strong I was, telling me how much support they were sending. Is there anything they could do? The outpouring of support has just, it's really beyond words. It's been staggering and, and so cool to know that it wasn't just about winning races, that people really are, are behind me no matter what. And it, if anything, you know, showing this human side, you know, knowing that uh, I'm going through something a lot of people have experienced. People have been so compassionate and so supportive and I almost didn't know what to do with that kind of attention at first because I'm used to being kind of the strong one out being the role model supporting others. But to know all this support is coming my way, I really just take it all in and, and use that to get through the hard days. Use it as a, as a indication that I can take what I'm going through and give purpose and meaning to it and know that I can give back to a lot of those people and help show the positives that can come from this. And then we're having some fun with it too. I started wearing these brightly colored running shoes into my doctor's appointments because I wanted to kind of keep it things happy. And my husband kind of realized, well, you know, maybe we could do something without this, about this, that we could share this happy idea with others. So we came up with these fun socks that say it's going to be okay. Because really, no matter what you're going through, it's going to be okay. We're going to get through this. So we've, we've been selling the socks. We're donating the proceeds to Active Against Cancer. We've got some really fun headbands as well. And people are just are buying those up right and left. So again, just another amazing show of support. I feel so grateful to have all this incredible support that I know I get to enjoy on a totally different level because I'm kind of a public figure. And I just wish that everybody going through a big challenge like this could have that same feel because it certainly lifted me up. 
Where can people get those socks? We've got them on Keekin.com. I hurry fast though. They're going, they're going quickly, but I think we're having so much fun with this project that we hope to keep it going. Um, but yeah, it's fun. We got the socks and the headbands and, and some cycling caps as well. LL Bean's been a, a company I've worked with for many years and they've been really supportive through this process. So they made the headbands for us. I didn't ask you earlier, what stage was your diagnosis? Initially thought it was stage one because we identified two small tumors about the size of a pea each. But then as kind of looking at imaging a little bit closer, it was felt that those two tumors were actually connected, kind of like a barbell. So then because the, then it was now one bigger tumor, they upgraded me to stage two. And then we ended up finding a positive lymph node as well. So that's because I had stage two with the positive lymph node. Mine turned out to be triple positive, which means that the tumor was receptive to estrogen, progesterone, and this HER2 protein, which means that those kind of things in the body help the cancer grow. So that was important in determining what exact treatment I would do. We decided to do chemo up front, which in a lot of cases, if you're early stage, which is you know considered one or two, you often do surgery up front and then chemo or maybe not. But with me, they decided to do it, be aggressive and do the chemo up front. And I'm actually really grateful for that because it gave me time to really consider my surgical options, which as an athlete was really important because in the beginning, I felt like I was kind of like double mastectomy was going to be the way to go. That's what I had to do. But as I was able to research things more often, I ended up actually going with the lumpectomy instead. So I was grateful for that. And, and I, from what I've experienced so far, granted, I still have radiation to go, but chemo for sure has been the toughest part of it. So I'd always rather do the hardest part first. And I will see that I had a complete response from the chemo. So when they went in to surgically remove things, there was no sign of the tumor. The lymph nodes were clear. So I'm, at this point, I, I'm pretty sure I'm cancer free, which is a great feeling. And to be able to know that gives me a lot of confidence going forward. And I also wanted to ask you about when you found the tumor and then whenever you started going through the treatments, did you have thoughts like, oh, my body, like I hate my body right now. And then having this weird separation of mind and body of being angry at your body and thinking like, how could you do this to me body? I know that's definitely a common response for people. For me, I've, I haven't really felt a strong emotion against my body or against the situation I'm in. I mean, for sure I'm frustrated, but I guess I'm surprised because in my mind, I always think I'm superhuman. So it's kind of like, man, here, I thought I had the strongest body ever and it's susceptible to cancer too. But then I realized that this is a cancer. It cropped up, you know, and now we've done some treatment to eliminate it. And there's a lot of reason to think I can get back to being as strong as I ever was. So it's just something that happened. Again, we can't really explain it and you can't do anything about it. You just deal with it and move forward. And I love how strong my body is. And I am excited to, you know, I probably won't get back to my Olympic caliber now that I'm retired, but I do realize how much I love getting out and pushing myself and being strong. And so I'm looking forward to building back to that. And I'm thankful that my treatment is not going to compromise that in too many ways. Yeah. So looking forward, what do you want to do? <laughs> Well, I am excited to pick some new goals because in my first few months after retirement, I realized how much structure I had with ski racing and how much I loved having kind of clear goals to work towards. So I'm going to be doing the American Birkenbeiner Ski Race oh, nice. in February, which is one of the biggest North American ski events that I've never raced myself. So that'll be a good challenge over 50 kilometers, especially about a month after radiation ends. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. And then uh, I've been loving being out on the mountain bike more. So a lot of cool mountain bike stage races and events to do. Yes. Um, I got a training partner here in Penticton that loves to do off-road triathlons. And she's trying to convince me to join the swim team next summer. So 
Um, I think it's going to be a challenge to decide exactly what I want to pick as my big goal, but I definitely want to pick something that's going to challenge me and going to take a plan to work towards it. Well, I'll put my vote in for mountain biking, especially stage racing, because that's what I love. So, <laughs> Okay. Well, my son's name is Breck, named after the Breck epic. Oh, so really? my husband did it a few years ago. I might have to go back and do that at some point. And here in BC, there's a lot of really cool events. And yeah, I just I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. The Breck epic was actually my first ever stage race. Okay. From what I've heard, it sounds pretty epic. <laughs> yeah, it's really cool. It's really different from riding in BC. It's more like alpine riding and not like steep and technical like we have here, but it's still like hard because there's like hike a bike and really long climbs. And for us now that live at low altitude, you definitely feel the altitude, but it's a really cool adventure. Yes. Yeah, and it sounded like a, just a cool event all around, yeah. like the people there and all the things they have going on. So that, that could be a good one. Awesome. Well, yeah, I could go on forever about stage racing, but <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show and thank you for your amazingly brave and powerful and positive perspective, not only through ski racing, but through being a mom, through fighting cancer and for being transparent and vulnerable, sharing that story. Cause I know that it can't be easy every single day to do that. Well, it's, it's my pleasure. I mean, like I said, it, it's really helps me knowing that whether it was doing loops in the woods or whether it's, you know, battling through a tough day on the couch after chemo, when you know that your story can help others, it gives you purpose and meaning. And yeah, I really, I really enjoy kind of taking a step back and, and talking about all of it. So thanks for having me. Awesome. And, and last thing is, well, number one, where can people find you? And number two, I read on Wikipedia the story about how you were named. So I want people to hear that. Yeah. So a lot of people see my name and they go, whoa, what culture is that from? And I say, well, my parents made it up. Um, uh, my dad was a big alpine skier growing up and he was fond of uh, Kiki Cutter, who was the first American to win a World Cup alpine race. So we like the name Kiki. And then they were kind of considering Megan, but it was getting pretty popular. So they mixed the two together and got Kikin. So then my teammates in high school nicknamed me Kiki Animal because I was always raring to go. So you can find me on a lot of social media. I'm Keek Animal on Instagram and Twitter. I'm Keek and Randall on Facebook and Keek and Randall on LinkedIn. And it's K-I-K-K-A-N. That's correct. Yep. So keekin.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. And it's been really fun to do this in person as well. Yeah. We'll have to go again another time and talk about fast and female because I think that's another topic you'd like to hear about keeping girls involved in sports for life. Oh, yeah. Do you want to just really quickly, like, just give people the synopsis of that so they can go check it out? Sure. So Fast and Female was an organization started by, at first, my fierce rival from Canada, but uh, later became a really good friend, Chandra Crawford, also an Olympic gold medalist in cross-country skiing. Started with the whole idea that girls are dropping out of sports at six times the rate of boys, especially through high school. And we need to counteract that trend with good social groups and positive role models. So I've kind of been the leader of Fast and Female in the USA. We hold events all over the country where we bring the top athletes from the area, bringing them in to meet the girls between the ages of 8 and 18. And we hopefully show the girls how much they have to gain from being involved in sports, whether they want to be competitive or just, just healthy and have fun. We hope to keep them in sports for life and then hope those girls then become the role models for the next generation. That's awesome. And that's a really cool legacy. It's a lot of fun. We, we, we get to wear a lot of pink too. So I think it's good to celebrate girls in sport and uh, something I'm looking forward to spending a lot more time on now that I'm retired. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And yeah, looking forward to chatting with you more. All right. Yeah. We're just a short hour drive away. So let's get out for some training and some riding. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to get out for a mountain bike ride with this woman. She is so impressive and so inspiring and so powerful. 
And I'm so glad that we got to have her on the show. We got to hear her story. And man, she's a badass. Like, how many people have accomplished what she has in their lives? Thanks again to those of you who are leaving reviews on the podcast. And if you haven't done it already, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or choose a five-star rating because, man, that really helps with the searchability of this show and it helps more people find it. And it only takes two seconds. So if you want to give back to the show, that's a really awesome way to do it. And I really, really appreciate it. If you're not signed up for my bi-weekly newsletter, I've been sending it out for the last month or so, and I guess that's only two newsletters. The format is I have a blog post or a note from me at the start, and then a few of the podcasts from the last couple of weeks. A lot of podcasters will send out a, an email every single week alerting you of a new podcast, but what I've found is that I actually don't open those emails over time. So. I'm just trying to bring some value to you guys to write articles that are helpful to you, regardless of whatever the topic might be. And I'm always open to hearing what you want to learn about. I've also been changing up my social media strategy a bit to become more and more educational for you. So I've posted stuff like how to climb a steep feature, how to breathe properly on the bike, some mindset tricks. So if you're interested and you like that, I also would love to hear what you think. Awesome. Well, we will see you back here next week. There are so many awesome guests that I'm really excited about coming up in the next week and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you in just a few days. 